Our sermon text this morning is Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them whether Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it was written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me, uh, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And warned, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can be seated. Please join me in prayer before we jump into this story in Matthew. Lord, thank you so much again for a time to gather together as your people and to look forward to Christ's second coming as we remember his first. And in this Advent season, we pray that you would use this text and this story to help us, to help us to worship you more clearly, to know Christ better, to bring you more glory through our lives, through our worship. And we pray that this text would inspire us to be about the business of sharing the gospel of Jesus wherever it is that we go to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Matthew chapter 2. Thank you, Avery, for reading it and for reading it from the Jesus Storybook Bible for our kids. And thank you for having me to come and preach. The last time I preached, I asked specifically to preach because it was a text that I was very familiar with and was looking forward to preaching this time I was asked, which I did say last time, feel free to ask me any time to preach. And so I was asked this time, and I thought that would be great. I'd love to be a part of Advent. And then I got the text that we would be preaching on this Sunday, and I read it. And I have to admit to you, at first, I was not excited. The first time I read it, I thought, man, the wise men that's the story that we're going to be in this Sunday. I mean, who even knows anything about the wise men? What do you guys know about that? How many wise men were there? Anybody? No guesses? Three? Three. That's what most people think, and that's what I used to think. We don't know. We have no idea how many there were. We have no clue from the text how many. The idea of three comes from the fact that there were three gifts that they brought, but there could have been six, there could have been 12, there could have been two, one of them got an extra gift, there could have been who knows how many wise men. How many of you guys have wise men as part of a nativity scene in your home? 
Anyone? Anyone have the wise men? Our favorite nativity scene, uh, Bethany and I received it, I think it was our first Christmas as a married couple, was like a hand-carved wooden nativity scene. Super cool. And my favorite part were the three wise men, three of the wise men at least, that were there and they had a little hand-carved staff and they, they looked awesome as part of this nativity scene. But the, the thing is, they weren't there. <laughs> They weren't there when Jesus was born. They're not part of the, I mean, technically you should take your nativity scene, take the wise men out of it, leave it up, and then later on, sometime the first week of January, when you take your Christmas tree down, just put the three wise men out there with the baby, right? Make the baby a little bigger, maybe buy a toddler uh, figurine, and then put the wise, because they showed up somewhere between one and two years after Jesus was born. Joseph and Mary were still in Bethlehem, as we'll see in the city, and these wise men make a journey to them, and we just don't know very much about them. It calls them wise men from the east, and that is what we know. We play a game at the dinner table with our children most nights, and they just call it the Bible game or Bible person game, and you pick a Bible character, and everyone asks yes or no questions until they guess your character and the person that guesses gets to go next it's a super fun game and i'm always uh, pleasantly surprised most of the time by what our children have learned from us from trace crossing and from school about bible characters sometimes they pick characters that i'm like hey i didn't know about that guy but last night i picked a wise man and 30 minutes later, my whole family was like, we give up, we don't know. You know, Noah, I think finally just, or maybe Naomi finally just guessed and got it right. There's just no clues. There's not, there's, there's not a lot that we can know about these guys. And it's honestly a little bit of a strange story for Matthew to include in this text. And so what I want us to do together is to look at, first of all, why, why did Matthew put this in here? What is the main thing that Matthew wants to communicate to us or God wants to communicate to us through the book of Matthew? Why is this here? What can we learn from it? And then second of all, I want us to look at three quick responses that we might have that we find in this text to Christmas, to the coming of Christ. Why is it that Matthew would include this story about these wise men from the east coming to see the toddler Jesus. Verse 2, or verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. It's a very interesting place for Matthew to start. This is the first story we get about Jesus after his birth in the book of Matthew. And what I want us to see here is God sovereignly draws people from all over the earth to know and worship Jesus. God sovereignly draws people from all ends of the earth to know and to worship Jesus. These wise men immediately identified he is king of the Jews, and we have come to worship him. And Matthew begins here with an emphasis on other nations, which is a very strange place to begin. Because if you remember, Matthew is the gospel that we consider the gospel to the Jews, 
Luke is very much more of a Gentile-aimed gospel message or written with words and vocabulary that would appeal more or be more recognizable by the Gentiles. Matthew is very Jewish-oriented in his writing. And what I love that Matthew does, don't miss it, is the first people to come and worship Jesus after the story of his birth came from the East. They weren't Israelites. They came from most likely Babylon, somewhere where modern-day Iraq and Iran would be today. They travel far, and they are the first ones to worship him for who he is after his birth narrative. And listen, listen to how Matthew ends his book. You guys know the story, right? Jesus raises from the dead. He's about to ascend, and he gives the disciples what we call the Great Commission, right? Which is to go where? All over to the ends of the earth. So Matthew's story of Jesus starts with God drawing people from the east and ends with Jesus sending people to all ends of the earth saying, lo, I will be with you even to the end of the age. See, God is sovereignly involved in drawing men and women from all nations to worship Jesus. And this is the first message that Matthew gives us about the life of Christ after his birth. See, the, the gospel of Matthew begins with this come and see narrative. And that is what we focus on at Christmas. Come and see this newborn king. But it ends with go and tell. Go and tell the world about him. And what I love is come and see in the New Testament always leads to go and tell because this is what the Lord is about when it comes to the coming of Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. When we come and see Jesus for who he is, our response must be to go and to tell. But also what I love about this is that who, who brought the wise men there? Who told them about Jesus? Who told them the message of the Christ who was to come, this, the Savior of the Jews, the Messiah? Who told them that he was worthy of bringing gifts? We don't know. We just know that the Lord is the one who worked. God is sovereignly bringing men and women to come to know and worship Jesus Christ. And there's two things I want us to see about this. Number one, he is capable of doing this on his own. He doesn't have to have us. He doesn't need us for this message to go across the ends of the earth. He doesn't need us to bring men from the east to worship Jesus. He did it on his own. He is in control over all those who will come and know and worship Jesus. But secondly, he has chosen to include us. He has chosen to include us, which should really give us a sense of encouragement when it comes to telling others the message of Christ. It's not up to us whether or not they believe or know. It's not dependent on us whether or not the message gets across. It is up to the Lord. Our response could be, okay, fine. If the Lord wants people to believe, he can just put a star over our church and he'll bring people into our church. Or he'll just give them a, a vision and they'll have a dream. That could be our response. The Lord will do it, so I'm not worried about it. Or our response could be, look and how sovereign and how awesome he is to bring men and women to know Jesus, and yet he has asked us to be a part of this plan. He has invited us in so we can trust that he is going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish, and we get to be a part of it. The come and see the king who has been born should always lead to go and tell the nations about him. But it may seem hokey to us, a star, really, a dream about where to go. I told a story in the first service of 
a story that I once heard from an elder at a church that I was a part of right before we came here, right before I met Bethany, actually. I was in an elder-led prayer meeting at my previous church, and one of the elders stood up, and he shared a story of a couple who were missionaries in a country in which it was not okay or safe, necessarily, to be a missionary. And they had to travel from one place to another place in that country, which was always dangerous, and upon the road, they realized they were low on fuel and they needed to stop and fill up the car. And this is not something that was just easily done in the place where they were. There wasn't a gas station on every stop. There weren't four options of which way to turn at the exit. They had to find somewhere to fill up the car that would be safe. And they pulled over and they're gassing up the vehicle and they notice that there's a man across the parking lot who is just staring a hole right through them, just staring them down. And they were immediately overcome with fear. Why is he there? Has he called other people? Are his friends coming to ambush? Does he recognize who we are? We're, we're the outsider here. What, what's going to happen to us because this man is staring at us in the middle of this gas station parking lot in the middle of nowhere where it is not safe to be a Christian, not safe to really be a Westerner at all. So they fill the car up, they leave the gas station, they're driving down the road, and the husband begins to explain to his wife that he is feeling the Lord calling him to turn around and speak to the man about Christ. And he's having that conversation where you're kind of asking for advice, but you're kind of just reasoning with yourself and you need someone else to kind of listen to it, right? I'm, you're a soundboard, but like, I, I want to go back, but this is a really dangerous part of this city and if we go back who, t who knows whom he is called and what's going to happen to us if we go back but I don't want to be disobedient to what the Lord's telling me to do and he's reasoning out loud and his wife stops him and calmly says I would rather be the widow of a martyr than married to a coward Woo! you want to talk about how you speak to a man alright you want to see a coward we're going back get your bible out we're taking him through the roman road the galatian road we're both going to be martyrs tonight yeah you start calling your husband a coward that's when the wheels start to turn around they go back to this man and have this conversation hey in the native language my name so and so I, I felt compelled to come back here and tell you about jesus christ and the man started weeping and he says in the native language the best they can understand him I had a dream last night to come here and wait that was it and I remember hearing that story and thinking man if somebody came and said I had a dream last night to come here and wake I might think well that's weird did you eat too much sugar before you went to bed did you, you know, did, does God really speak through these ways does God really work in this way you bet he does and it might seem weird to us in the West, but we see right here, God draws sovereignly men to himself. And he used this missionary couple to lead this man to Christ in another country, but he also used his sovereignty, his control over every little detail of our dreams even to say, come here and wait and the gospel will come to you. And when we start the story of Jesus in the book of Matthew, after he's born in this miraculous way, we see God drawing men from the nations to believe in Jesus. And we should be excited that we get to be a part of that. We should be inspired to go and tell of the king who's been born. So we get to Christmas. We get to this time of year where we celebrate the coming of Christ. And there are three responses that we see in this text to the birth and the arrival of this king of the Jews. And I think that all three 
are responses that we could have easily in this room. One of them is the correct response. Two of them are the incorrect response. And I want to walk through them with you in hopes that we would see ourselves somewhere in this passage and that the Lord would speak to us and lead us toward the right response when it comes to the birth of Christ. The first response we see is Herod, and it is a response of arrogant pride. So, back in verse 2, the wise men have come to Jerusalem, and they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. We have come to worship him. In verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And we also know, if you skip down to verse 7, when Herod summoned the wise men secretly and he ascertained from them, when did, this, when did that star occur? And this is how we get a hint of how old Jesus would be because we know what Herod would later do to all of the boys who were born in the last two years. He sent them to Bethlehem saying, go search diligently for the child. And when you've found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship. And then in verse 12, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed and went to their own country by another way. Herod's response to the birth of Christ was to be troubled. It was arrogant pride. It's easy for us to, realize, or to read that and to think to ourselves, man, that's awful. Here it is. God's own son is born and your response is to be troubled. Your response is to want to find him so you can not worship him, but get rid of him. You don't want him around. And we think this is a very awful response. And our temptation is to judge Herod harshly when it comes to his response to the birth of Christ. But if we are honest, our response is often very similar. And can you put yourself in Herod's position for a minute? Put yourself in the position of being king of the Jews and the wise men come up and say, hey, I'm, I'm looking for the king of the Jews. I mean, I told Matthew, imagine you're here in the first service and these guys roll up from the east, Maryland. And they come and they roll in and they think, we're, we're looking for the leader of this church, looking for the pastor. Matthew says, here I am, I'm the guy. No, 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 not you. Can you show us the nursery? We're, we're looking for a, the real pastor, the one who is to come. Or imagine you're at home and, and these guys, they come from the east in a caravan, a Dodge caravan from Atlanta. And they drive over and they pull up to your door and they knock on the door and they're like, I'm looking for the head of the household. Here I am, proudly. No, 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 not you. I'm looking for the true head of this household, the one that, that is to come. What a weird response that is. Like, what, what do you mean it's not me? I am the king of the Jews. Who else could you be looking for? He's troubled. Because the problem is the arrival of Jesus is significant for any ounce of authority that we think we have over our own lives. Jesus doesn't come as just a baby who's going to grow up and die for people who would trust in him. He comes as the rightful ruler, the one who is authoritative over all things. And so when he comes and they are looking for the true king of the Jews, this is a problem for Herod. It's also a problem for us. It's a problem for us when we realize there are aspects of our lives that we prefer to not give anyone else control over. There are things that I like about my life, even Christmas season. 
I, 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 I think about, I did a, like a word association with Christmas yesterday when I was thinking through this. What are, when, I, when someone says Christmas, I just close my eyes and think, what are the things that pop into my mind? Pigs in a blanket. Pigs in a blanket is a big one. That is what we make every Christmas morning at my house. And then I think about my living room. My living room is where I want my kids to wake up on Christmas morning, okay? That's, a, that's like a deal breaker for me. I don't want to go to someone else's house. We don't want to travel to see in-laws. My parents, we can see you guys whenever, but Christmas morning, that's it. My house, pigs in a blanket. I can smell them right now. I remember two years ago, wasn't a pig in this town. There were no little weenies, no little smokies for sale at any grocery store in Tupelo. I checked them all. Thankfully, my dad, Papa Bart, had one bag in his freezer. He saved Christmas. Pigs in a blanket. That's what I want for Christmas time. I want to be home on Christmas time. And we have all of these things that pop in. This is how Christmas goes for my family. And those things may be a little weird this year. There may be some changes to how Christmas is going. Maybe the people you're used to spending time with, you're not going to be able to see. And then when it just comes to our lives and how we go about our lives, we can pretend like Herod's response is unusual, but when we're often told, hey, where's the one who's supposed to be in charge of that? Our response might be to be troubled as well. What do you mean, the one I'm in charge of that? I'm the one who's over the finances. I'm the one who's over how we spend our time. I'm the one who's over what we tell our kids. I'm the one who's over what we watch, what we see, where we go. The arrival of the wise men is saying, actually, no, there's a king who's been born. And we're not here to see you, Herod, your authority, whatever. We're here to see this guy. It's troublesome for those who are not willing to submit to the authority of Christ, that he has come and been born a king. So that's one response we might have to Christmas, not one that we would, that we would say out loud, but one that if I look inward, I sometimes live. I sometimes react this way. I don't want you to be in control. I don't want you to take this thing. I don't want you to be over this aspect of my life. I would rather stay king. So in that way, it's not that unusual for Herod to want to get rid of this pesky guy who might be a risk to his authority. But there's a second response that we see that I think is even more common. Herod had the response of arrogant pride. The second one is apathetic passivity. Look what happens here in verses four and following. Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people. These are the, the, the guys who know everything about the scriptures, right? This is the, the starters on team scripture. These are the guys who are varsity level Jews. He assembles all the chief priests and scribes and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born, where is the Messiah, the one who is to come and save his people, where is he to be born? And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. And that's it. They answered the question, they told him the correct response, and that's all we hear about the chief priest, chief priest and the scribes. That's it. They're gone. No more a part of the story. They don't care. 
And you know this not because it's just not in the story. Sure, they could have gone, but we know this because the rest of the book of Matthew shows them either not caring about Jesus at all until they do, and then they want him killed. The entire narrative of Matthew is about the chief priests and the scribes absolutely missing who Christ was, so much so that by the end, when he comes into Jerusalem, they begin to plot in chapter 26 for his murder. The same people. It's like they forgot the rest of that passage. They they quote Micah chapter 5 here. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, by no means least. Obviously, the ruler is to come from Bethlehem. We know this because it's in Micah chapter 5. The rest of that passage says, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. This is not just any leader. This is the one who's going to bring the very glory of the Lord. He's going to shepherd his people, not in his own strength, with God's strength, and they just don't care. Oh yeah, I know the answer. Bethlehem, obviously. Little down, five, six miles away. That's where you'll find him. See ya. Nothing else. Why is that? You would think that people who spend the most time studying about this guy, studying about what it is that the Lord is doing would be the ones who are most interested in finding him. They don't even go to look for him. Herod asked the wise men to go find him and then come back. They're not even interested in going to see why these men have come. Why is that? It seems strange to us that they wouldn't care enough to even go look. But I don't think it's that strange to us when we consider how familiar we get with the coming of Christ. When we consider who we are here in Bible Belt America, where Advent is a season that we can blaze right through without thinking once of the implications of Christ actually coming. When we can hear and sing songs, I I mentioned it's so easy to sing Christmas songs because you just know them. You just heard them forever. You know all the words. We sing them. Yeah, it's a jolly good time. But are we gripped enough that it makes any difference when we focus on the coming of Christ? Or are we a lot like the chief priests and scribes? Oh, yeah, he came, Bethlehem. We know the story. We've made up songs about it. Some are right, some are wrong. Silent night, definitely not a silent night. If you've had kids, not a silent night. We have these things we do about it. We have these cute manger scenes. We have these traditions. We talk about it. We sing songs. We do the thing, but... Yeah, we know. Christmas, right? We're very much like the Pharisees in this, or the chief priests and scribes in this instance, in that we can blaze right through the truth of the incarnation without it making any difference in this season at all. I've been there. I have been there in Christmas seasons where I get to Christmas Day and I think, wow, I haven't even thought about it being Christmas. We've been to church services, we've done the whole deal. And also, we're, we're, we're the type of people who have somehow decided that the best way to celebrate Christmas, I don't want to step on too many toes because I'm very guilty of this in my, my own life, the best way to celebrate Christmas is to create massive amounts of distraction from Jesus. I got in a Facebook conversation, I know you're all surprised, regarding, I won't say because kids are in here, but the man in the red suit, and it was a great conversation about how Noah handles the 
man in the red suit at school and how those conversations go with his friends. And this conversation, it was, it was, uh, it was enlightening, it was fun, it was encouraging. Uh, and, and look, I, I mentioned the first service, look, if, if we parent our kids this way, other people parent their kids that way, I would say we don't judge, but we do sometimes. And I have to ask forgiveness for that because it's different for everybody, right? We're not necessarily the, the ones who have a monopoly on how to parent right, that's for sure. And, and we have these conversations, but in the middle of this, I'm talking to Bethany, I'm talking to my friends that I, that I trust and I love and I'm thinking through the implications because when your kids are asking you, why do we do this? Why do we not do this? You have to really think through what are the implications here and I just realized, man, aside from this, just this story, we have so many ways that we've, we've built up around us that are nothing but distractions on Christmas. Christmas is a time that is known for being what? Joyous, which we'll see in a second. No, usually it's known for a time as being stressful. We're so stressed at Christmas time. I'm stressed if I think about going to the north side of Tupelo on a Saturday between Thanksgiving and Christmas. I'm stressed about the traffic. I'm stressed about whatever I need to find not being there. They're out of pigs in the blanket. They're out of whatever it is. I'm stressed about it. Stressed about family. Stressed about meeting with people. Stressed about the gifts. If I'm honest, though, my kids open gifts on Christmas, I am as surprised as they are what they got, right? But Bethany's stressed about finding those gifts. I'm like, that is a great gift, man. Who got you that? Oh, we did. It's a stressful time because we build up all of these distractions away from Christ. And listen, nothing is wrong with giving gifts. Nothing is wrong with eating pigs in a blanket. Nothing is wrong with meeting as family, with gathering, white elephant, whatever it is that we're doing. Those aren't wrong things, but we must be careful that like the chief priests and scribes, we don't blaze right through Advent and right through Christmas without even giving a second thought as to what it means that Christ came. We have made that easy to do. We have made it easy to raise kids to love Christmas and have no idea who Jesus is. And so, we don't want to respond like Herod with arrogant pride. Who is this guy who thinks he's going to have the right to rule over my life? And we don't want to, want to respond like the chief priests and the scribes with apathetic passivity. Oh, well, so what? Who cares about Jesus? We do want to respond like the wise men, however many of them there are. Why did they come to find Jesus? They make it very clear. For we saw his star when it rose, and in verse 2, we have come to worship him. We have come to worship him, a toddler. We've come to worship him. Now let's see what happens when they find him. After listening to the king, I'm in verse 9, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The four ways to say lots of joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with not just joy, but great joy. Four different ways to say, hey, lots of joy here. When they saw the star resting over a little bitty house in basically a podunk town five or six miles outside of Jerusalem. They rejoice, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. 
what is your response likely? You are wise men. Most likely these guys are some type of astrologers who are in some ways advisors to a ruler. That's what most people think. We don't really know. We know they had wisdom. We know they followed the stars. They had a lot of money. We'll see. To make this journey safely, to be brought before the king as an audience, and then to give the gifts they give, they were well-to-do. And, they, and, and when you're on this journey... And you're going to find the one who's been born a king, and you walk in, and it's in the middle of Podunkville, Israel, and a little house, and it's a toddler. You guys have been around toddlers, right? There's not a lot about a toddler that inspires worship. I usually spend time around toddlers and immediately thinking, how do we get this thing back to its mother? I want them about five or six years old, then we're cool. We can talk, we can have a conversation, we can reason together, we can go do fun things. Toddler, this is a lot. You just have to take care of everything about them, and they don't care that you take care of everything about them. They just want to do things their way, right? Yeah, they're everywhere. We're just out of that stage, and it's, it's nice. If you're in there, you'll get there. But they see this kid with his mom, and they fall down and worship him. What a response led by the Lord. They fall down and they worship him. These aren't people who grew up expecting Jesus to come. These are men from the east. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Gifts fit for royalty is what those are. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way and news of King Jesus goes to the ends of the earth right after he's born what a great response that they have so Herod Herod has arrogant pride and the chief priests and scribes have this apathetic passivity and the wise men have authentic praise over who Jesus is they don't need him to do anything they don't know what he's going to do specifically they just know who he is and knowing that brings them an absurd amount of joy brings them the humility to fall on their faces and brings them the willingness to sacrifice prized possessions of theirs only because they recognize who he is so what is our response when it comes to Christmas are we at all challenged by the authority of Christ in our lives, by him coming as a king who is to rule? Are we apathetic to his coming? Do we care? Does Christmas make a difference when it comes to thinking about Christ? Or are we like the wise men, and do we respond with joy and humility and sacrifice? Because this is the response that is merited by Christ. I mean, they brought gifts that were worth quite a bit. And it's always interesting to me that they gave Jesus these gifts. I do want to address the, the worship of Jesus is authentic for them. And they did not give gifts like in hopes that Jesus would recognize them one day or in hopes that they would merit some sort of favor before the Jewish king. They were going back home, right? They're not going to be under Jewish authority when they go back home. Why did they give these gifts? The gift giving is, is super interesting to me because our kids like to give us gifts. Anybody have kids that want to give you gifts? Noah specifically loves to give gifts to Bethany. He's a mama's boy. He always has a giving heart. The problem is he doesn't have a job. 
So he always is asking for money to get a gift for Bethany, which is an interesting predicament. I'm like, how much money you want, bro? What are you gonna get? You're gonna get some perfume from the gas station? You know, like these are the things, the ideas. You're gonna, I always encourage them to draw a picture or write a letter, but they wanna buy things. They wanna buy a necklace from a little kiosk in the shell station. They wanna buy these things for their mother and they ask for money and you give them the money and they're so proud to give the gift. And I think about this story, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now listen, Jesus was a toddler. I don't think he fully understood all the things about who he was and what he was sent to do as a toddler. That's a weird idea for the, the incarnation, right? He's fully God, fully man. I don't know how that works exactly. I do know that the Bible tells us he grew in wisdom and in stature, so he did learn things. So I doubt he knew at this moment, but there has to come a time where he's remembering this story that's been told to him about these wise men from the east who have come and given him all the stuff that he made. He was there in the beginning. Nothing was created that wasn't created in, through, and for Jesus Christ, and yet they bring it anyway, and he receives it as an act of worship from them, but he is the one who is the rightful owner to all of it. It's his gold. It's his frankincense. It's his myrrh. It is the sacrifice of them because of who he is that is important. So we give gifts at Christmas and nothing is wrong with that. We don't have any gift that we could offer Christ that he doesn't already own, but our response to him should be sacrifice. It should be, hey, we give you everything because we recognize you are the rightful owner and heir to all things. Our response to the coming of Christ should be joy. Does Christmas bring us joy? And look, I, I don't wanna, I don't wanna, make that trivial i don't want us to pretend like the things that cause sadness at christmas time aren't real because christmas seems to be this time that we do often focus on on loss we focus on who is not with us for this christmas what, what is not happening who can we not gather with what has covid taken what is life taken from us that we're not going to experience this christmas how has life changed that we don't get to experience it the way that we normally would and that would make me sad if i'm being honest if i couldn't have my piggies in a blanket and be in my living room on christmas morning at about 70 71 degrees with my kids opening their presents i would be sad about that and I think that's okay, but I also think that could easily be a problem. We're going to hear from my friend Ben in a minute. He shared in the first service, he and Jenny are about to go back overseas on Saturday to serve a second term as missionaries in a place where it's not super comfortable and not super cush to be a Christian. And I heard that, and the first thing I thought was, man, they're about to spend Christmas over there. And it made me uncomfortable. It made me uncomfortable because I couldn't have my pigs in a blanket and sit in my living room. I couldn't watch my kids open presents under our tree. And I thought about it. Am I, am I more like Herod or the scribes? Or am I going to respond to the coming of Christ like the wise men? And say, hey, listen, I, this arrival of Jesus that we look back to every year in Advent to remind ourselves ought to bring humility in my life. They fell down on their faces. It ought to bring great joy because he conquers all that could come against us in this world. He is the one who is the rightful heir to all things and he gives us new life and it ought to inspire sacrifice where it's not about what we get or the presents that are under the tree. It is about the gift of life and we're willing to sacrifice our own lives not because he needs it but because that is what he is worth.
And so the wise men, I think, are a great inspiration to us to respond differently than we might have, especially to me, to respond differently than I might have to remembering the coming of Christ. And we're about to enter into a time of confession together, and then we're going to enter in a time of assurance and the Lord's Supper together. And two things I want to remind us of. Number one, when we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive, but we should confess when we are distracted, when we are not focused on Christ at Christmas. And that's such a cliche thing to say. He's the reason for the season, right? But even in hearing that, it doesn't often move us. And so I want us to spend time confessing. Sometimes I don't like that Christ is in control and I don't want to give up control of my life. Sometimes I don't care so much that Christ is who he says he was and I just care about the things of this world. Sometimes I'm not willing to worship him in humility. So I'm gonna pray that prayer of confession for us and then we're gonna move to a time with Pastor Matthew when it comes to the Lord's Supper, and I want us to remember here in the book of Matthew that the Lord is the one who is sovereignly drawing the nations to worship Jesus Christ. And any time that we approach a text about Christ that is come and see, come and behold, we should leave that text with go and tell. We see the incarnation and our response is we have to tell the nations that he has come. That is what we remember with the Lord's Supper, what he has done and what it means for all mankind who would believe in him. Let me pray.